Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. All right, so we're on Lamentations. Lamentations chapter one. We're going to work our way straight through all five chapters. It, it's right after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. To lament, what, is, what does it mean to lament? Does anybody know? Breathe. Yeah. So this is essentially, this is the author, and there's reason to think it's Jeremiah, although he doesn't identify himself specifically. We'll talk about that in a second. But to lament means to grieve. So this is probably Jeremiah's grief. He's, the, the temple's been destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem's been destroyed. And if you remember where we left off last week, Jeremiah was given the choice to go have a pretty cush position in Babylon or to go wherever he wanted. And he chose to go back to his hometown, even though it's been decimated, even though there's almost nobody there, and to live with the poorest of the poor. Because what, what Nebuchadnezzar did is he, he set the poorest of the poor up to work the vineyards, which is actually a step up for them. They had food, they had work, they had uh, you know, water and, and shelter and land. I mean, for them, it was probably really much significantly better than where they were under the, under the siege. Um, but that's kind of the poorest of the poor and they're working the vineyards and Jeremiah can go have a cush job with the rich and the powerful. He could be like Daniel in a sense, um, or he can go wherever he wants and he chooses to go back home. He chooses to go hang out in the vineyards with the poorest of the poor and because he loves Jerusalem. And so for all the talk of him being a traitor, <clears throat> for all the misunderstanding that people had because he was saying surrender to Babylon because it's God's judgment, he, he kind of shows at the end that, that in truth, he loves Jerusalem. He's always loved Jerusalem. The reason he's sort of a weeping prophet is because he loves Jerusalem and his message is so hard. And so now, even though, you know, one thing to realize is he's just been vindicated. He's been vindicated in a big way. He's been saying forever, look, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Zedekiah is going to be uh, taken away and, and imprisoned in Babylon. And all these other false prophets are wrong. And he's been saying that over and over. And all these other prophets are telling him he's wrong. He's wrong. It's not going to happen. It's going to get better. And here we are. He's been 100% vindicated. Everything he declared about the judgment has happened just the way he said it would. And yet there's no gloating, right? There's nothing from Jeremiah that sounds like, I told you so. None of that happens. It's just grief. Because even though he, he's been vindicated, he still feels the pain of the judgment that he has known. He's been wrestling with it all this time. Now it's happened and he's grieving. And so he processes this grieving um, in the way that, that a literary uh, Hebrew might do, as Jeremiah is. He processes this grief through poetry. And he processes it by writing a, a formal type of grief poetry, which is called a lamentation. Some of you may remember from the Psalms <clears throat> that there were lamentations in the Psalms, that every so once, every once in a while we come across a Psalm which didn't have a positive upturn at the end. It wasn't like, oh, I'm feeling bad, but now I see you and I feel good. It was just like, man, I'm just really sad. And that was kind of the whole Psalm. And, and that's the thing about lamentations. Now there's an there's a, um, exception to this in our grouping today, and I think it's intentional, but in general, lamentations are they're just grief. They're just a moment to express how you're feeling at the loss of something. And for Jeremiah, he's lost his homeland and he's lost his people and he's lost his heritage and he's lost the temple. And I mean, you can only imagine, it, you know, how all this feels. And he's old enough. He's been doing this long enough. He's actually watched quite a bit of the decline of Jerusalem. He knows how be <laughs> beautiful it used to be. 
He knows how special it used to be. And now he's watched it and it's completely gone. And to all intents and purposes, Israel is no longer in existence. The nation is gone. There is no nation. They have been completely uh, conquered by Babylon. There's, there's not even a puppet leader anymore. It's, it's all belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is where he is. This is where he's at. Um, he unfortunately doesn't get to stay at home and write poetry till the end of his days. We'll, we're going to find that out in the history next week that he actually, his life is, his uh, sort of difficult life is, is not come to a peaceful end. Um, but, but right now he's home. He has a moment to reflect. And this is what he does. He writes these, these poems. <clears throat> One thing about the Book of Lamentations is there are a number of times across the year that, that the uh, Jews will gather, religious Jews will gather and read whole sections of scripture, um, much as God called them to do. Remember God even, even, I don't know if they do this anymore, but God called them, called the Israelites to gather once a year and read the entire law, the entire first five books of the Bible. And, um, and so it's not unusual even now that that kind of thing happens. So they read the whole book of Esther um, and, and actually in some places, all of the wisdom literature in one, one festival uh, called Purim. The book of Lamentations, as long as we know, as long as there's been recorded history has been done every year since the destruction of the first temple. Now, of course, we don't know in those first few years when they're in exile, if that really happened or not. But as far back as we can actually see recorded history, they have had this tradition where every year they commemorate, actually take it back, didn't start till the destruction of the second temple. So this would be in the New Testament era. Some point after the destruction of the second temple, they began a tradition of reading straight through all the Lamentations. And they do this on the date Tish Abahav, which is which literally means the ninth day of Av. So it's like 4th of July. It's a holiday which is named by its date. So on Tishbahav, they gather together and they read the entire book of Lamentations, which we're going to do tonight. And Tishbahav is actually on July 17th. So we're pretty close this year, um, but we won't wait till July 17th to do it. We'll do it tonight. And they just read straight through and they reflect and it commemorates both the first and the second destruction of the temples because now here's something that is either just something they've conveniently decided for history's sake or it's an odd uh, coincidence in the realm of God's coincidences, which rarely are coincidences, in that even though the first and second temple are destroyed 655 years apart, at least according to tradition, they're both destroyed on the exact same day. And that day, of course, is the ninth of Av. And so that's why they get together and they read it on those days. All right. It's a, it's a fast day on July 17th. They get together, they fast. It's actually July 18th. So most of you probably remember or are aware that the, the Hebrew calendar is, is peculiar to us. Our calendar is peculiar to them. It just depends which side you're standing on, what's peculiar. But, but the, the Hebrew calendar, their days start at sunset of the day before. So for them, Tishbab actually starts on sundown of July 17th and runs through sundown of July 18th um, this year. That's when it is. Again, where the 9th of Av falls in our calendar changes uh, each year, but that's when it is this year. Jeremiah never says he wrote this. There's no reference in here like there is in the book of Jeremiah itself that tells us this is Jeremiah. Um, however, there are four, well, three really good reasons to think it probably is Jeremiah. Might not be, but there's three reasons to think it is. One, stylistically, it matches. 
um, for people who really are familiar with the Hebrew uh, language and read it in the original language, they say the style is, is unmistakable, that, that Jeremiah and Lamentations are written so much the same. Um, so stylistically, it matches. Number two, obviously, it matches the context of the person and the history. It's the kind of thing that Jeremiah could have written, and we know he has this moment in time to write it, which fits exactly kind of what happens here. Number three, there's something called the Septuagint. Um, here's a quick pop question. Does anybody know what the Septuagint is? It's, isn't it the Old Testament, but in Greek? Yes, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So around the time that Greece becomes the, the king of the world and, the, and that everybody learns to speak Greek in the world virtually, there is a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And it's, it's among you know, translations of the Old Testament, it's one of the older ones. So people do often look to it, um, but it's also one of the most prolific ones. In other words, it was, it was available nowhere near with the mass quantity Bibles are available today, but before the time, there was more Septuagint copies available than there would typically be of, of almost anything. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is pretty clear that there are some additions and mistakes in the Septuagint. That's okay. As we found older manuscripts, we can see sometimes that they don't line up with the Septuagint. By and large, everything is pretty standard. But there is an interesting footnote, and that's that in the Septuagint, uh, the Book of Lamentations begins with a whole sentence that isn't in the actual ancient manuscripts. And so what it tells us is that at least as far back as the Septuagint, this was what was believed to be true. And this is what that sentence says. It says, and it came to pass after Israel had been carried away captive and Jerusalem was become desolate, that Jeremiah sat weeping and he lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem. And he said, and then it begins the book of Lamentations. So this was added by the, the translators who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, but it shows that traditionally that's been understood and it, it makes sense. So if we get to heaven and discover that some unknown person wrote the book of Lamentations, it will not... Uh, of course, we'll be in heaven, so this is an obvious statement, but it won't shake our faith at all. Um, but, uh, but it also uh, wouldn't surprise us to discover that Jeremiah, in fact, didn't write the Book of Lamentations. So there you go. There's the history on the book we're about to read. Here's the structure. So it's a poem. As you guys know from the Psalms, that means that it's going to have parallelism. I'm not going to go into all the details about what that is again, because it's not, it doesn't show up in huge ways in Lamentations, but it's there. The tendency to say the same thing in different ways. Um, and that that's kind of how they rhyme in Hebrew poetry is rather than rhyming sounds, they rhyme meanings. So that's one thing we should expect to see. The other thing that's interesting about the Book of Lamentations, and this is not true of all Lamentations, but it is a form of Hebrew poetry we see a lot. You guys will remember this from the Psalms, is that they're all across, they're almost all acrostics. So what that means is uh, most of these the Lamentations, each of these chapters, you'll notice if you look, with the exception of the third one, each of these chapters is 22 verses long exactly. And those verses uh, are not as arbitrary as sometimes verses are. <laughs> those verses follow the lines. So in the original Lamentations, there were 22 lines for each of these Lamentations with, again, the exception of the third one. We'll talk about that in a second. The reason for that is that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each letter, each line begins with the, the first letter is the the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts from Aleph, and that's the first letter of the first line. And then Beta is the second letter of the second line. And that's about the extent of my Hebrew, so I won't go through the rest of that. Um, 
And so that is the, um, that's what's happening. And that's why there's 22 verses in each, each chapter. And so they are this acrostic. Um, and so it shows that there's a lot of craft and there's a lot of formality to the way that these lamentations are written. Um, and um, so we'll go ahead and start and we'll read the first one and we'll kind of talk about what it looks like. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who is queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weaknesses they have fled, sorry, in weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. This is about halfway through the first lamentation. Before I go on and read the rest, let me ask you a question because it's going to apply to the rest here. First of all, just anything that you notice um, about the style, about the way he writes, about the content, anything at all, what, what stands out to you in the first half of this lamentation? I don't think this is what you were going to bring up, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Um, yeah, I I was not here for most of what you talked about with Jeremiah, but I, I always like with Jeremiah, and I think it's very prevalent here, how much he has to balance the tragedy of the fact that his his city has been punished and taken into exile with the tragedy of the fact that it is entirely their fault for doing it, that the that they've done these things that yep I have think kind of hurt them long term yeah i think what's kind of amazing about jeremiah is that he does have both those emotions at once he understands that it's god's judgment and he understands that israel deserves it and yet he also feels genuine sorrow about it happening like i say there's no sort of gloat or there's no sort of there's no sort of evil glee in his anger about it even it, it's it's just tragic to him. It's, it's right, but it's tragic. And so now that it's done, he even has more freedom. I think there's less balance. There is still some of that. He points out it's because of their sin, but, but there's, he's less concerned, I think, about the balance right now because he's not calling in to repent. It's too late. He's just mourning over what's happened. So I think that's a really good point, Joseph. Anything else that stands out to anybody? One thing that kind of stood out to me is just yeah like I mean these people that were so full of slender and so like majestic you know because of 
who God made them and just how far the fall like really was and how they were, you know, like so blessed. And now they're like, so like naked and exposed and like, you know, now that's really good. And I think one of the things about this first lamentation, which is more distinct from the others, they're all lamentations, but this one really emphasizes the fall. This one emphasizes how far they've come, how beautiful they were and how, how despicable it is now. So I think that's also a good, that's a really good point as well. Anything else that anybody wants to point out? Yeah, I saw sort of the same thing that the, um, the first part of each of these verses talks about the, um, not always the majesty, but the glory of Jerusalem. And then the second part of each of the verses has to do with um, people's responses. Hmm. There, uh, no one to help her. Princes are like deer that find no pasture. Friends have betrayed her. All who pursue her have overtaken her. That's good. Yep, I think that's a good catch too. That's really interesting. Um, and that, that goes into kind of the stylistic approach here. And that, that probably goes mm -hmm. into the parallelism a little bit, that that's kind of what he's matching for each verse as he goes. Any other thoughts? Well, I like that too, because, um, yeah, I mean, because she, like to another nation, okay, it would be sad, but yeah, she has no like comfort or whatever, because the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins, like in yeah. um, verse five. Yeah, the comfort would be in the Lord, but that's hard right now. It's interesting, though, you did something else there, Meredith, that none of you have mentioned, because Jeremiah, I think, is so skilled that we slipped right into a stylistic approach that, that we didn't think about. It just became natural. You just referred to Jerusalem as a person. You just called her she. And that is something he does throughout this entire lamentation. In fact, he does it through all five. But in this first one, he sets it up interestingly. He talks about her in third person, and then in the middle, right where we stopped, he actually starts speaking as if he's Jerusalem speaking in first person. And it's just kind of an interesting sort of approach. So he, he gets us used to the idea of personalizing Jerusalem, calls her a she, describes her as a widow, describes her as a queen, as a person, talks about her in those senses. And then right where we stopped, he's about to start quoting her. It's like he's speaking and he is her. And these are her words. These aren't Jeremiah's words or these aren't how Jeremiah is feeling. This is how he understands Jerusalem is feeling, which is he's so he loves Jerusalem so much. He has so much empathy that he kind of speaks for the feeling of this city. It's a, it's a very interesting approach. And here's what he says. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. And then he switches the tense. Look, Lord, on my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. Uh, actually goes back and forth. He's going to slip in a complete first person here in a second. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary. Those who had forbidden to enter your assembly, all her people groan as they search for bed, for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me and that the Lord brought on me in this day of his fierce anger? From on high, he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands, they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck. 
and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep and my, over, my, my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. So here he is, this is, this is her speaking. My children are destitute. This is, this is my sorrow. Then he goes back. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Slips back first person. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I have called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, and there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress, and they rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced, so they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my sins. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. So one of the things that's interesting about this first lamentation is that it is, of course, Jeremiah's lamentation, but he writes it as if it's Jerusalem's lamentation, right? He writes it as if Jerusalem is mourning and Jerusalem is grieving. And that's kind of how he processes this at, at the beginning of this book is by, is by sort of picturing how Jerusalem would mourn her own devastation. So that's chapter one. Any, any thoughts or comments on chapter one before we go on? As somebody with an appreciation for poetry um, and, uh, and, and a desire to write better poetry than I do write, um, I am also always appreciative of the ability to write something like this in such a formal structure as an acrostic and to be able to manage that and still have the kind of the, the, the imagery and the emotion behind it. I just take a moment to say, good job, Jeremiah. All right. So do you suppose, Dave, that because it was written as an acrostic, it's, it's meant to be remembered, it's meant to be recited. So as the people recite it, because it's in first person, it relates them personally to Jerusalem. So in other words, as they're reading it, they're saying, I am feeling this. I am, this is against me personally. Yeah, that's really good. So, because it's an acrostic, he meant 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 to do that. And I like you, that. you could even argue that their tradition of reading it on Tisha B'Av that certainly is helped by the fact that it's written in this way. And maybe on some level, not that Jeremiah knew there would be a second destruction of the temple, although maybe he did, being a prophet he was, but he didn't tell us. Maybe he wrote it with this intent, right? That that whether or not there would be a second destruction, maybe he wrote it as an acrostic so that people could recite it, so that people would remember, like you said, so they could have this memorial. And that's in fact what it's turned into. Thousands of years later, they still do this and they do this regularly. That's really good, Craig. I like that. I like that point. I think that's that's uh, that's a good insight. It's beautiful. Um, any other thoughts? Well. Yeah, and that I, I yeah, I really like what you said, Craig. And I mean, like they did do like the Psalms like of Ascension, you know, and they had a lot of things that they did to like remember certain events like by 
and things that they recited. For sure. So that makes a lot of sense. And God's the one who got them all prepped for having fast days and feasting days and, and holy days. I mean, he, he established from the very beginning seven days a year that they were supposed to, uh, seven events a year that they were supposed to have, actually more days, because some of them are multiple days, but, but seven feasting and or fasting days. Um, and so, that, you know, and since then, that, that's just been part of their tradition. You know, they have Tish Bahav, which isn't in the original seven. They have Purim, which isn't in the original seven. They have uh, Hanukkah, which isn't in the original seven. Um, so they, they, it's just part of their legacy. And you can, you can blame God for it. That he said, I want you to remember things. And one way you remember things is to get together and talk about them and recite them to each other. And so it, it makes sense that this would be such kind of an integral part of all that. All right, so number two is an acrostic. Um, again, just like number one, 22 verses, Hebrew alphabet, Aleph through Zeta. Ha, I got my Z in there too. Um, so um, uh, it is the, all the, it's the same. Now there is a quirky thing that happens in the rest of these acrostics. And that's that in the middle of the Psalms, right about verse 15 or 16, so a little past the middle, they, swip, they swap two letters. And nobody knows why that happens. But you may remember from the Psalms that things like this happened all the time, that acrostics were very rarely pure. They would, they would often swap letters or add a letter here or even just skip a letter sometimes. Uh, and nobody knows why. And the, the truth is there probably is some structural purpose to all this because it happens so frequently. I don't think it's sloppiness. So I don't know why it is. We're not going to, I don't have any theory. I don't expect you to have any theory. Um, if you do, you're welcome to share it. Uh, but they swap a couple letters. You would never know that if I didn't tell you, but it's, since we're talking about it anyway, there you go. So here we go. Other than that, though, it's a perfect acrostic. Okay, so chapter two. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool. In this case, I think footstools are referring to the temple specifically. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. Horn, remember, is almost always a symbol of strength. Um, like, because when you have a bull or an ox, their horn is their strength, is their thought. He has, in fierce anger, he's cut off every horn of Israel. So he took away all their strength so that they lost. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Her, their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her kings and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. 
The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. What can I say with you, for you? What can I compare, with what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. Your walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summoned to a feast day, so you summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. So any thoughts on this lamentation? How's it the same? How's it different? Any, anything stand out to you on this chapter? It doesn't actually sound that much different than his uh, prophecies. It's true. And I think that's relevant. I, I'll tell you why I think that's relevant in a second, but I think that's a good point. Any, any other thoughts? has more to do with the sin yeah this is sin. yeah yeah this has a lot of destruction it does it has to do with the sin and even more than that if you look at the first half if you think about the first half of the first lamentation it was all it was all the the biggest pronoun was she and it was all about jerusalem if you look at the first half of the second lamentation the biggest pronoun is he and the he mm -hmm. refers to god and this is all about how God did this and God did that and God did this and God abandoned these people and God abandoned his sanctuary and God abandoned his altar and God did all these things. Um, it's very much, that's kind of the theme of this lamentation. If the first one was kind of the fall, how far they've fallen, how beautiful they were, how despicable they are now. This one is a, is a lot more about how, how God brought all this to bear and how terrible that is. That, that, that when God judged, it was awful. It was just horrible. And, and this is Jeremiah, and that's why it does sound a little like his prophecies, because that's part of the theme. Um, I have another thought on that in a second, but any other thoughts? Well, it also kind of like struck me, like with his prophecies, because he's just like crying out to the people to like, I mean, I guess they can't really repent for this, but like repent in a way, you know, and like 
see what has come and, you know, don't like give yourself relief and pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. And yeah, he's basically calling um, you to lament. He's saying, hey, these are lamentations. I'm calling you to lament. Let's lament. Let's let's take some time to grieve. You know, let's let's stop being prideful or fearful or whatever else is going on right now at this moment, this terrible moment. Let's lament. Let's just do that. Just pour it out before the Lord. So that there is a call in here for them to lament, which is interesting. What else? Well, uh, David, I think we, you and I and uh, the focus group that meets on Tuesday discussed this kind of before, even though I'm trying to think of the passage that we were talking about. It's eluding me, but uh, I know I've uh, mentioned this to you before that I know personally that I've gone through some stuff where, uh, where it was appropriate to lament but it was very hard for me to allow myself to get to that place because I thought I still needed to hold it all together or I thought that if I started lamenting, I wouldn't stop. And so, uh, so I find these verses very comforting. And I'm also reminded of, uh, which of course this was a different, uh, a different circumstance altogether, but isn't there a verse in Psalms that, uh, that says, uh, pour your heart out to God and that he's our refuge. Yeah, more than one, but yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and there are some laments in the Psalms too. I think a lot of what you said, Jolene, goes to my, my other point. And this, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fight for this uh, theology. So if you disagree, that's totally all right. But if you think of the first one as kind of Jeremiah writing the lament as if it's coming from Jerusalem, this one is as if it's coming from Jeremiah himself. The tenor of the lament, the tone of the lament, even the content of the lament. He's lamenting the false prophets, which is part of what he laments. He's like, <laughs> sad it is that the prophets led you astray because you could have repented, but they kept telling you there was no sin. And so this is like it's his lament. And as part of his lament, as part of it being from him, we see a couple of things. One is we see that he does say we should all do this. <laughs> we should all lament, like Meredith pointed out. But the other thing you see is he's not afraid to take the questions to God too. You know, at the end, he's like, God, are you watching? Is this right? Look at how awful this is, God. Look at how terrible this is. Even though I acknowledged in the whole first half of the lament that there was reason for you to do this, God, I'm really sad that you did this, you know? And, and so I think it's almost like the second one is the first one. It's like, how did Jerusalem feel? Second one is like, this is Jeremiah. This is the stuff that is causing him the most pain right now is the sorrow is, is how could God do it? And yet, how could the prophets have let this happen? You know, these are the things that he's, I think, feeling most poignantly. And that's, I think, also why it reads a little like his prophecies, because I think it's the most personal in a sense um, uh, for him from that standpoint. Any other thoughts before we go on to chapter three? Well, I agree with that, but I was also, it kind of also seems like he is giving a little bit like, like how God might feel about it, you know, and sure. with everything, it may be like appealing to that, like too, like with what you're just saying, because he was just, you know, he has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. Yep. Um, the Lord has rejected his altar, you know, all these things that, you know, were. No, and I think that's a really reasonable argument. And I thought about that too, that, that in some ways, 
he's it's God's lament, right? It's that God had to do all these things and God can feel sorrow about having to do them as well. I don't know that he expresses the sorrow as if it's from God in that sense, but I think it's I think that's a reasonable argument that he's he's a little bit of giving it from God's perspective. And another way to see that is we've seen that through the prophecies of Jeremiah that frequently um, we've we've seen cases where Jeremiah's sorrow and God's sorrow mingled, where where it all it felt like the same kind of thing. That as as Jeremiah would be sad about what was happening, you'd even hear God say, you know, Jeremiah would have God say things like. I am abandoning my children, you know, like that's hard, um, even for God to, to, to be doing in a sense. So I think to see those mingled is a good point. That's a good, good, good point, Meredith. What else? Anything else? All right. I know I already spoke once, but one last final thought I had. Is it's also, not a quote up about, here. It's okay. <laughs> but one last final thought when you talked about, uh, God abandoning his children it reminded me of the, uh, as a mom that are talking about the, you know, the, human the human sacrifices and the you know children the way that they're talking about that the eating the children that yeah. was really unsettling yeah that's super unsettling i didn't comment on it then because we're going to come across it again later and i'm going to comment on it later but that has come up a few times in the prophecy of jeremiah and and that that's super unsettling the the, the understanding is that the siege was two two things we're gonna actually i'll leave it because he explains it better when i'm going to comment on it later so hold that thought is very unsettling. We're going to see it again in a little bit. And there, I think we're even going to get a glimpse into why it happened. Um, okay, so uh, chapter three is actually three times as long as all the other songs, yeah. 66 lines instead of 22. And the reason for that is because this acrostic is an acrostic, but what it is, is it's an acrostic by stanza. And each stanza has three lines and each stanza, every line in the stanza starts with the same letter. So the first stanza, every line starts with Aleph and there's three of them. Second stanza, every line starts with Beta and there's three of them. Third stanza, like I said, Gimel is in there somewhere but I don't know my alphabet. Um, so, so on and so forth all the way down. So that's why there's 66 because now instead of one line for every letter, there's three lines for every letter. So it makes three times as long a lamentation um, with a slightly more complicated structure. And as I read it, when I'm done reading it, I'll ask you, why do you think he wanted to make this one three times as long? Why tinker with it? Why make this one longer? It's also the middle, the exact middle of the other, uh, of all the Psalms. There's five, I mean, it's Lamentations, there's five. This is number three. So it's, it's got this central position. Um, so there's some questions that you can think about. Why would that be for this Lamentation? So let's read it. There are some things that stand out you will see right away that are very different, or at least one thing in particular. All right, here we go. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old, and he has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. 
He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. So let's stop there because there's a turning point. So before we hit the turning point, anything stand out about this, this lamentation this far? Anything that seems different to you? He's, he's bad mouthing. God. He's bad mouthing God? <laughs> he does all that, does he? Yeah. He says God has done horrible things to him. Yeah. Do the things that do the things that Jeremiah says here in this first passage, are they things that happened to Jeremiah that you're aware of? No, it it kind of reminded me of like a mess of some of the messianic messianic stuff. But that doesn't quite fit either. No. What's interesting is I think if you if you track where we've been with these lamentation so far the first one is sort of a personification of jerusalem and it was how jerusalem felt about everything the second was jeremiah and or god and how they felt about everything i think the third one interestingly enough i think the very first verse tells us exactly who this is it's not jeremiah it's jeremiah being empathetic and speaking on behalf of somebody else and who is he speaking on behalf of he's speaking on behalf of every single individual citizen of Jerusalem. In other words, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. So all those people who have been judged by God, which Jeremiah is not really in that group, right? I mean, he's sort of experienced it culturally in Jerusalem. He's experienced his own grief, as we saw in the lamentation before this. But now it's like he's speaking as if he's one of the citizens of Jerusalem who's been through this and how it feels to them. And so to them, yeah, they look at it and they say, God has been mean to me. <laughs> God has driven me away. God has surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. God has made me dwell in darkness. And the truth is, that's all true. From Jeremiah's perspective, he helps us see that it's because it's the judgment that they deserved because they didn't repent. But there's nothing actually incorrect about what they're saying. It just sounds really harsh about God, but it is what they're experiencing and it is God who's done it. And so I think it is a reasonable for Jeremiah. He's like, this is how you can lament. In the last one, I called you to lament. Well, here's what it would look like. If you were to lament as a citizen of Jerusalem, who, un, you know, literally, he wouldn't say it this way because it sounds self-righteous. And I don't think Jeremiah is ever self-righteous. But in essence, he's saying, I lament from a position of someone who did the right thing. <laughs> so my lament looks different than yours because you're lamenting from the position of somebody who has not done the right thing and you're experiencing the full on wrath of God. And so he's saying though, but that's okay. You can still lament. That is part of your repentance as Meredith said earlier. And as you lament, this is what it would look like for you. And then something very non-lament like happens. And I think it's because of we're in this context because he's telling the citizens how they should lament, but then he's like, but because you haven't responded to God and you haven't listened to God, I do want you to think about something else as you, you lament. I want you to be aware of something else. And this is what he says. I remember my affliction and my wandering. So he's like, remember that. It's true. That's part of your lament. 
my, the bitterness and the gall, I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. That's all good, says Jeremiah. Go ahead and lament, feel those things, say those things, express those things. But then he says this, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. One thing I remember, but another thing I'm gonna make myself think of, I'm gonna call it to mind. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. In other words, if you're lamenting, you're alive. <laughs> and, and you should take hope in that, right? Because how many people are not, right? I mean, this has been a huge judgment. And he's like, as hard as it's been for you, if you're lamenting, you're alive. And the only reason you're alive is because of God's great love for you. That's the only reason. So this is what he says. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. All of that talk, as harsh as it sounded, the truth is God's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. What a great thing to hear when you think you're at the end of the line, right? I mean, Israel's gone. There's nothing left. God's abandoned you. Guess what? Tomorrow's a new day and God's, God's mercies, God's loving kindnesses are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. You've probably heard this quoted before, but think of it in this context. The Israelites have lost their portion. Their inheritance was supposed to be Jerusalem. It was supposed to be Judah. It was supposed to be Israel. Every member of Israel had specific land they were supposed to receive the inheritance of. It was so important that God had laws designed to make sure that from generation to generation, the land would always end up at the same family with the same people, right? Whether that meant you had to, you know, you're, 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 you, you had to marry your brother's widow, or it meant that you had to give the land back after seven years. Everything, all of those laws were to make sure that people didn't lose their portion. Well, now they've all lost their portion. <laughs> they've all lost their inheritance. And Jeremiah says, that's okay, though, because God is our portion. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. In other words, be glad you're getting this over now and learning to trust God and learning to look to his goodness because there will be goodness coming. And better to learn that now than later when you're older. He goes it on. Kind of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It kind of seems like he's kind of like introducing them now to like who God is like before they wouldn't listen but now you know and like and connecting with them them in a way that they can like understand somewhat yeah. yes and it was important I think it's important to him they lament first and part of the reason for that is because part of the difficulty they've had this whole time is they were unwilling to accept that the judgment of God was coming the prophets kept telling them it's all going to be okay. There's not going to be anything to lament. There's no reason to be unhappy. Everything's going to be okay, but in a really shallow way. And because of that, they have never faced the reality of the judgment. So I think it's important for Jeremiah that just now, as he begins to bring them hope, he doesn't simply say to them, it's going to be okay, because that just sounds like all the other prophets. He wants to say to them first, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Accept that it's terrible. And then bring to mind who God is. Like you say, what you can count on is not what's going to happen tomorrow, because I don't know what that is. I mean, maybe Jeremiah did. 
but count on who God is. And he makes this point in the next sentence. So, so he said, lament, lament fiercely, lament hard. And then he said, bring to mind the hope and know that you can count on God and tomorrow's a new day and his loving kindness will come and, and it, God will be good. He is good to those who hope in him. So turn your eyes towards him. He didn't do it before. Lament that. Now turn towards him. But then he goes on to say, to go back to say, but you got to lament first. And this is what he says. Let him sit alone in silence. Who is the him? It's the man who's bearing the yoke while he was young. It's the one who is waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He says, let him sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. I think the point he's making here is there's a moment in your lament where you settle into acceptance, where you say, God has done this. And instead of arguing and complaining and yelling, I'm going to try to sit and just accept that the Lord has laid this on me. And that's a hard thing, but that's what he's asking them to do because in their particular situation, they have avoided doing that. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. So here's this tension. Lament, bury your face in the dust, but there is hope. <laughs> let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Again, this suffering, the oppression, even what's going to happen now, they're, they're, under, the, they're under the bondage of, of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he's going he's gonna to strike you on the cheek. He's going to disgrace you but no one's cast off by the Lord forever. Sit quietly, accept it, but know that it won't last forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. What an interesting sentence, which we can wrestle with theologically. He clearly willingly brought grief and affliction to Israel. <laughs> for Jeremiah to say he doesn't do that is interesting. And I think what he means is ultimately, I think it's like a parent who says, I just want my kids to be happy at the same time that that parent intentionally makes their child unhappy to teach them a lesson, right? I mean, I can say with complete sincerity, I just want my kids to be happy, except sometimes I make them unhappy and I do it on purpose. And I think that's kind of what he's saying here about God. God, ultimately, he doesn't want to bring affliction or grief to them, but he will in the process of moving them towards an ultimate place of... Uh -huh. of of blessing to crush well, also also yeah. they um they brought it on themselves for sure it wasn't right. it, he didn't do it all he didn't bring it on all by himself right god didn't that, that applies to a parent too right i mean if you're a parent who yeah. punishes your children because you want to that's weird but if you if you punish your children because they bring it on themselves then that makes sense right very very similar to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? See, this is what's happening now in the exile. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? It is God. It's right. You're right. It's God's fault. Is it not from the mouth of Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with the clouds so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls and ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. 
What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. Those who are my enemies would, without cause hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit and you heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me, Lord. You have heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long, look at them. Sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Piercy takes another turn there towards the end. I'm going to let you comment on that. Uh, if you want, my big question is, why so long? Why is this lamentation longer than all the others? What is that turn at the end? And why is this sort of central in all of the lamentations? Any thoughts? It's central because of the hope. So it's maybe the maybe the other two are uh, not going to be so heart sick and heavy. I think there's. I think that that could be that this is the beginning of a more hopeful position. That's one possibility. What else? My conspiracy theory was actually going to be the opposite of that. That this would be the center of the acrostic. That the well, reason this is so long is because it's the point that everything is building towards. Yeah, you remember the chiasm and parallelism where the central point, the thing that comes up in the middle is actually the conclusion. Weird for us in the Western Greek world to read that way, but the Hebrew poetry does that more than a few times where what happens in the middle is the point. So if that's the case, to make this one three times as long and to put it in the middle position, means that this hope is the central point. Now that would mean that the next two lamentations won't be more hopeful because you're supposed to read from the outsides in, in, a, in essence. You're supposed to think of it that way and end on this sort of, not literally, but metaphorically in your brain and end on the hopeful point. That's one possibility. We'll see, we'll see which bears out. We'll see if it gets more or less hopeful as we go. So that's a possibility that it's a parallelism with that, that chiasma in the middle. What else, any other thoughts about this? Why so long? Um maybe because like of its importance and he really wants them to listen isn't it like is psalm 119 the one that is like all about like the word of god and it's in the same like style or am uh, i thinking of yeah it is that's an acrostic that's true that's a very long acrostic that one is Extremely well, and it, it does this, doesn't it do the same thing where it's not each verse is one, but the whole, the whole stands. And that seems like kind of like an important, an important thing and like focus on this, possibly. I don't I know. Think that's a good point. So what do you guys think is happening at the end here? He, he's, he, he kind of talks about the lamentation. He talks about the hope and encourages him still to lament. And then at the end, he, he starts talking about God vindicating him? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone in Israel? But he's talking about this justice. He's talking about vindication. Feels like it's him. I don't know. What do you guys think? What's going on at the end? Why is that tacked on here? Isn't it against their enemies? It's against 
whoever is speaking's enemies, sure. So if he's speaking as a citizen of, of Jerusalem, then it's against their enemies. If he's speaking well, I guess... at that point, it's against his enemies. It's a little hard to tell, but I think that's, a, that's certainly a possibility. Well, I guess I just assume, but I don't, I don't know, like with Even David's, so, you know, like destroy sure. my enemies type thing. Even so, why? why? Why is that here? He's talking about lamentation. He's talking about you deserved it. He's talking about hope in God. Then why all of a sudden this, uh, this vindication prayer? Maybe still they'll know that like he is like their God and that he is like God of all. Yeah. I don't know. Any anybody else have any thoughts on that? Because the other ones, he keeps saying, "And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your God." He says that in the prophecies over and over. That's true. Here's what I wonder: this lamentation is exactly three times as long, and it's possible that it's because it makes three times as many points. <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> The first two lamentations are just lamentations. They're from different perspectives, but they are just lamentations. They just are grief. This one has three different messages in this one lamentation, which is weird for a lamentation. Lamentations aren't supposed to be mixed like this. So the first message is lament. The second message is hope. And the third message is this vindication. The third message is this idea that God is going to rescue you. And, and it almost is broken up into three parts. It would be more convenient for my theory if actually each stanza had all three parts, since there's three lines in each stanza, but it doesn't. I tried it. It doesn't work out. But, but nonetheless, there do seem to be these sort of three distinct ideas. And maybe there's a reason that it was important to put these ideas together, that maybe what he wants the citizens of, of Jerusalem or the ex-citizens of Jerusalem, the exiles now of Jerusalem to know, to understand, is that their lament will be complicated. <laughs> that their lament will include just sorrow for what God did to them, but it will also include hope in that same God that he is good and loving and has preserved them and not consumed them. And then it will include trust that this same God is actually going to restore them through vindicating them against their enemies. And so it all each of the three points comes back to God's responsible. He's responsible for your trials. He's responsible for your hope. And he's responsible for your victory. And that's what you need to know, because that's what you have refused to accept all the way up till now. You have refused to accept that, that when Babylon came, you said, that's not God, that's Babylon. And I kept telling you, that's God. And so now that's what your lament needs to look like. It needs to accept the, the, the trials you enter from God. It needs to accept the hope you have is from God. And you needs to accept that the, the victory you're going to have is from God. That's, that's what I wonder about it being kind of central because it's for them, because it's their lamentation that he's writing now. And he's kind of showing them what it ought to look like, that it ought to include all three of those parts. Anyway, that's my thought. Anybody have any uh, arguments or agreements or other thoughts on that? think at the end um, he is uh, finally saying uh, you know they've been so bad um, and and he's telling God what to do um, in other words the Lord you heard heard the insult and then he's saying to God you know put them back blah 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 He's, he's finally uh, not listening. He is responding 
to everything that has happened. He told the people, he, but now he's actually saying to God, put um, them back what they deserve and to end that. The, and perhaps that's why it's so long. He, he, he had to um, put, a, put an end, put a finish, put an end to everything that he's been saying that people have done. Now he's saying, okay, I told you everything. I, I told you, God, you God, you taught. Now just better bad. <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, I think everything you said, I agree with. I think the only twist I put on it is I think that he's, I think that in his call to them to lament before he says all that, that he's intending it to also be exemplary for them, that he's showing them, again, because you know that God has judged you, he's your only hope for, for restoration. So ask him, yeah, yeah, ask him to do this, ask him to bring that restoration, turn that lament into a prayer for him to rescue you. Um, I think that, I, so I don't think that's yes. too far from where you were. I just have that in my head that it's also intended to teach them rather than just being sort of Jeremiah coming to a, a new point. Any other thoughts, anything else? All right, number four takes us back to the normal 22 line acrostic. It says this, how the gold has lost its letter, the fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the spoiler alert here. The gold and the gems are children. We're gonna find as we read the rest of this lamentation, he's not talking about gold and gems, he's talking about children. And he's saying that the children, there's something, something has happened. And part of the tragedy of everything that's happened is the value of children. The children have become undervalued, that there's been no value for children. And the people who have undervalued them are the Israelites themselves. So there you go, now I'll just read it. How the gold has lost its luster, the fine gold become dull, the sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Okay, uh, jackals live in the desert, and the, the point is that when jackal, the, the, the understanding, I have no idea if this is true, but the understanding by the Israelites apparently of jackals and their young is that even when they are starving, they will still nurse their young. And that ostriches are not like that. They are mean to their young. Mm -hmm. That is the understanding that Hebrews have. I have no idea zoologically if that's true, but we actually see this analogy in other places, both in scripture and outside of it. So for whatever reason, it was the Hebrew understanding of things. So that's what this means, that even jackals take care of their children, but you guys are like ostriches who don't. Okay. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. He makes an interesting point, which actually I think is really valid. He says Sodom's punishment was quick. Nobody suffered, right? The, the, the fire came down from heaven and that was that. They were done. Even Lot's wife turned to salt. You know, there's, there's no sort of long suffering here, but, but Judah has been through this siege 
they've been through this incredibly long, drawn out dying, daily dying process. He's saying that's a harsher punishment than Sodom got, which by the way, lines up with prophecies that God gave where he said it will be worse for you than Sodom. So it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is an interesting point. Let's see. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than rubies. Their appearance like lapis lazuli, he's talking about Sodom. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in their streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is become dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. So this is where I told you it was gonna come up again. I think the point is twofold. One is we understand there's a siege and the siege is so bad that people are starving and in their starvation, they eat their children. But I think part of the point that Jeremiah is making is that isn't what happens in every siege. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't. People don't always eat their children in their desperation to eat. And what he's saying is the reason that this horrific act made any sense to you at all is because you'd already lost the value of your children. You'd already come to see them as less valuable and important than they are. And because of that, when the siege came and you were desperate, well, it came out, your life was more important than your kid's life. And so you were just gonna eat your children. Um, I should point out because it's just one of the, 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 it's just part of the messiness of the history of everything. That, that there became this mantra and it, and it was really used in World War II, for example, by the, the Nazis propaganda. Part of what Nazi propaganda said was that Jewish mothers ate their children. They said this was a normal thing. They said the Jewish mothers drank the blood of their children and they ate their children and it's just what happened. And ever since then, verses like this have been used by anti-Semites, people who are just hateful towards Jews have used it to say, this is part of why Jews are bad because they eat their children. And I want to caution you to recognize even today that some of the conspiracy theories out there that exist that talk about eat people eating children and drinking the blood of their children has a direct line to a very anti-Semitic approach to the world. And many, many conspiracy theories have a direct line to anti-Semitic approaches to the world. You'll notice how often that the most firm proponents of, of uh, conspiracy theories do often think it's the Jewish fault. And so I just mentioned this because this is the kind of verse, this is where it comes from. That people grab a verse like this out of context and say, see, even God says Jewish mothers eat their children. Obviously it doesn't happen. This is, a, this is a statement about how bad things had gotten, the level of depravity, they didn't care about their children. And so when the siege came and they were desperate, that's what showed up. All right. I think it's, okay, it's interesting that it says compassionate women. Is that saying like, it's more, like otherwise compassionate? I, yeah, I don't. No, I think it's saying even people that would be regarded as compassionate in the normal scheme of things in that desperation, their true colors come out and they eat their children. Okay. I remember uh, one of the prophecies too, I don't know if it was Ezekiel or Jeremiah said that it would be better to be killed by the sword than to suffer the famine and the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, and he says that. Right yep. Yeah, it's mentioned right here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think both are true. I think what, what you're saying, Meredith, there, I think both are true. That Jeremiah is pointing out two things that are coming together. One is that 
situation was horrendous. It was so bad that punishment was worse than Sodom, right? Like, like uh, Sue was just saying that, that being in the famine was as, as hard as you can imagine. And that that desperation drove even people you would think of as compassionate to do horrific things. But he starts out this lamentation by pointing out there's already a problem with the way they view their kids. And so I think it's these two things that came together at this moment. Would those women have eaten their kids if they hadn't been desperate? Of course not. Of course not. But would they have eaten their kids in their desperation if they had been people who had been trusting God and have better character and, and valued their children where they should? No, they wouldn't have done it then either. They would have died for their kids rather than making their kids die for them. So I think that's the point is he's making both points together. The desperation and the undervaluing of kids came together in this horrific way. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within their, the blood of the righteous. Again, those shepherds, those shepherds that Jeremiah is always bemoaning. Now they grow up through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say, they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord, Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. Peculiar. There's a little prophecy right in the midst of the lament, right at the end of the lamentation. Not exactly sure why, um, but we know that this is a problem that Edom and Moab both had, where they were kind of rejoicing over Jerusalem's fall. So every once in a while, God reminds them, "Your turn's coming." Um, not sure why it's in the lamentation. That feels a little jarring um, to me personally, but apparently it didn't to Jeremiah. So there's probably a reason it's there. I don't have a lot of other comment on this uh, lamentation, but does anybody else? Well, it kind of blew my theory of hope in the middle of. Uh, yes, it did. <laughs> it does. It does line up more with Joseph's idea that it's a chiasma, and the central point is the conclusion. <laughs> it doesn't get more hopeful. You're right. <laughs> Any other thoughts? And then we just have 22 more verses, and then we'll be done. All right. So. Um. Well. Okay. No, it's okay. You can go ahead. You sure? um so okay who's like who's telling who to go away you're unclean so previously the prophets and the priests who are the righteous and the clean themselves have become so defiled and abandoned by god that people are treating them as if they're unclean and then he okay. expands that thought out to say that's how all of israel is now being treated and they they aren't even welcome in other nations Okay. Uh, to clarify. Yeah. I had to read that a few times myself to actually get that. So that's a reasonable. <laughs> okay. So here's the weird thing about number five. And I do not have an explanation for it. 
I could not find anyone that had an explanation for it. In fact, I actually emailed six of the smartest teachers that I know personally who do research and things. And I said, have you thought about this? And do you have any answer for this? Or have you come across a commentary which answers this? And I heard from one of them and he said, oh, when you find an answer, let me know because I'm really intrigued and I don't know. And I didn't hear back from the others, which I take to mean that I have stumped them. So here's the thing that may not seem like a big deal to you. And maybe it's not, but it seems so <laughs> intentional and I have no explanation for it. Lamentation number five, well, I have one theory I'll tell you, but it's iffy. Lamentation number five is 22 lines long. It looks like an acrostic. It's a lamentation, but it's not an acrostic. There's no alphabetization here. It doesn't follow the other acrostics. Why on earth does Jeremiah write five lamentations, four of which follow a very clear structure? Even the third one, which has the three lines, it's still following that structure. And then in the fifth one, abandon the craft, abandon the formality of the acrostic. It feels like there has to be a reason for it. I don't know what the reason is. Um, so so before we read it, if you have a guess, I'll take it. And then after we read it, if you have a guess, I'll take it. Go. I'm going to go with it's symbolic of how basically God is abandoning them. <laughs> and like, you know, the abandonment of the, of the exile. That's an interesting, interesting thought. Okay. Any other thoughts before we read it? And then we'll, we'll wrap up with this. All right, so here we go. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. So this definitely blows her theory about more hopeful. Um, any, uh, any comments on this lamentation? Why it's not an acrostic or just anything? What stands out to you about this lamentation? Um, it is, it is a, a seeking of God. I mean, definitely different than the other lamentations. I don't know. It seems like, I guess maybe not hope, but in some ways it's like a good thing because that's what like Jeremiah, or maybe it's just Jeremiah saying this, but that's what Jeremiah was hoping they would do was like turn to God 
Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's definitely, it's a, it's a, it's a prayer directed at God more specifically and directly than some of the others are for sure. Um, it's interesting. We talked, and you mentioned Jeremiah who's speaking. I think it is him, but notice the pronoun here. So in the first lamentation, yeah. the primary pronoun was she, and then it became I, but in both cases, it referred to Jerusalem. In the second lamentation, the primary pronoun is he, which referred to God, talked about what he was doing. Um, the third, he says at the beginning, I'm a man who's feel, faced the wrath of God, and then it's kind of I, and so it's, it's, a, it's like this, this narrative of this person. Um, by the time we get to the fifth one, what strikes me is the pronoun most predominant in this one is we. And I think what's happening here is that Jeremiah is saying, this is where we're all together. I did the right thing, you did the wrong thing, but you know what? We're all in the same boat. And Jeremiah is in the same boat. He went back to, the, to his home. He, he's, he's living there among the poor. As he says, we are slaves to slaves, right? He's, he's there as one of those guys. And, and I, so he's saying we, we, and it is, I think, a repentance. There is a repentance to it, but it's also a cry. Why do you always forget us? That's how it feels right now. How yeah. long will you forsake us? And by the way, why do you always forget us? I don't think it means like we use it. Why do you forget us over and over, right? Like I say, why do you always do that? What I mean is why did you do that yesterday and you did it again today and you're doing it again tomorrow? I think it means more literally the term always. It means why do you forget us for always? In other words, how long will you forsake us? Why is this forever? So it doesn't mean you keep doing it. It just means, is this continuous? Are you going to forget us forever? Are you going to forget us for always? Um, so why do you always forget us? And how long will you do this? What's interesting is even, <laughs> I told you they read this at the Tasha B'Hav uh, celebration or celebration fast every year. And even the Jews today are uncomfortable with the way this lamentation ends because their tradition is to read it this way. This, this makes me laugh because I don't think it's what Jeremiah intended, but this is their tradition right now. They read it this way. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. So what they do is they read the first half of that sentence, they read the second half, which is like, unless you're mad at us and never come back, and then they repeat the hopeful part again. <laughs> because they want to- I like that their prayer wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> because they want to end on this sort of, you know, just renew us moment, which is fine. I think that's fine. Maybe God led that tradition, but it makes me laugh because Jeremiah obviously intends this lamentation to end with a question. He intends it to end with the question that's really on their hearts. So there's a thing I like. When, when I used to lead worship years ago, we would do songs. And occasionally when we did certain kinds of songs that I felt merited it, I would have us end on a little bit of a discordant chord instead of ending on a nice resolved chord. And my thinking, which you don't have to agree with, my thinking was some of these songs are written to leave the question open. They're written for us to go forward seeking God and not resolved that we found him. And so we would end on a discordant chord, which leaves everybody feeling a little bit like, ugh, <laughs> that was not the ending I wanted. I think, that's what, I think that's what Jeremiah is doing in this lamentation. He could have easily ended without saying, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. He didn't have to say that. <laughs> he could have ended before that with just the plea for restoration, but he doesn't. He adds that extra little bit on the end because I think he wants to have that discordant feel 
he wants people at the end of the lamentation to go, yeah, that's how I feel. Is it going to be this way forever? Now, if it's a chiasma, they also know that the answer is in the middle. And the answer in the middle says, it will not be this way forever. God will definitely restore us. So it's not that there isn't hope, but it is that at the end of this, this, this section, there is this question. And I think it describes the, mo the emotion and the moment that we're in as we read the Old Testament. And so it's kind of perfect in that sense that that is exactly where the Israelites are. They don't have this, this feeling of goodness because of the hope to come. They have this feeling of everything's bad. And yes, they want God to restore them, but what if he's angry forever? What if he doesn't? What if, it's, they've, they've, what if they've gone too far? I don't know if you've ever had that sense. When I was a kid, I was a pretty good kid, but there were just a few moments where I know I went too far. You know, with my brothers or something, I would, I would push and push and push, and then I would go too far. And you know, when you've crossed that line, you're like, oh my gosh, I have now ruined this relationship forever. Fortunately, that never actually happened. But, but you kind of have that, that sense of, oh, I just pushed it more than I meant to. And I think that's the question. So that's kind of how I see the ending. And by the way, that might be why it's written without an acrostic. I wonder if part of what Jeremiah is trying to say is, this is no time for craft. This is no time mm -hmm. for care. This is a moment to just spill it out. <laughs> and it doesn't have to wrap up nice and neat. This is just how we're feeling. We're gonna repent and lament together and it doesn't have to be pretty. I wonder if that's it. It's kind of like there are certain circumstances where people ask me as a pastor to pray and there are certain circumstances where I know they want the prayer to be scripted and flowery. That's what they want. It's that kind of ceremony. And there's other places where I know I want it to be completely unscripted because I want to communicate that this is what prayer is, that we can just talk to God. So I think it might be kind of like that. Anyway, that's my thought. That's my theory. Um, what do you guys think? Any last thoughts before we close up for the evening? I have a question. If, if, if the lamentation had ended with restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, um, people, the readers may not realize how, how critical this is, what, what happened, and that it's not an automatic, he's going <laughs> to set them back on the right course. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. It's that it's that tension. And again, I, I relate it to being a parent because I am one. I mean, that, there's not a lot I can relate to with God. He's so much bigger than I am. But in small ways, I think being a parent helps us a little bit. And and I have that sometimes too, where where my you know my kids are sometimes much ruder to me and my wife than they are to like their teachers or other people. And we'll, we'll say why, why, why are you you know other people like, your your child is an angel, and and we'll say. Oh, is Lorraine still here? I was going to pick on her. Lorraine is an angel, so I, I, won't, I was only <laughs> she wasn't if she was still here, but she's gone. I, she got on the plane probably. Um, but but no, you know, some of our kids, you, you know, you're the, they'll say, oh, they were great. They were an angel. And I have literally asked my kids, why do you do that? And, and they're honest enough. More than one child has said to me, because I know you'll love me anyway, which I'm torn about. There's part of me, which is like, that's good. I'm glad. You're right. I want to affirm that. But there's part of me, which also wants to say, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday I'll just be really ticked off with you. And you should be afraid of that. Now, it's not quite like that for God, but it's kind of what you're saying that even though it is true that God is going to restore them, Jeremiah wants them to understand the seriousness of the wrath. And again, given that they've had a hard time accepting that all along, 
it makes sense that you would want to leave them with that. So I think that's a really excellent point, Sue. Any other thoughts? Well, I wonder too, like, I mean, he's like basically kind of already said like all of this. And I don't know, it just kind of sounds like he's like just weary and tired and stuff. And I mean, like with the acrostics too, it does seem like some of the point is for them to remember it. And so, I mean, I don't think that they would, this is just kind of for this time, like right then. And it seems, you know, I don't know that they would really like repeat it or say it in things. I don't they, know. They do. I mean, this is, they do read the Unless they feel the need to, like, yeah, but they even changed it. So. That's true. That makes me laugh, though. I just think that's so funny. I think it's totally fine. I'm not legalistic about it. I'm not like, oh, they messed it up. I just think it's funny that that, that is the compulsion that, oh, we need to, we need to make this end happier um, than Jeremiah thought we did. So, yeah. All right. That is the Book of Lamentations. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.